Good morning. We're at the midterm of our series of messages entitled Unwavering Faith in an Unsteady World. And today I'm going to continue where Pastor Aaron began last week and talk with you for a few moments on spiritual drift. Um, I want to begin then with a, a review. Um, this whole idea of the cycle of failure that we see in uh, Judges that uh, we used to, a picture to show last week is something that was profound in my life when I first uh, really began to look at it. About 25 years ago, I was taking an Old Testament uh, class as I was doing my biblical studies, and in one of the modules, uh, it began this way. The book of Judges follows a clear cycle in which the people commit sin. They cry out to God for relief from the consequences of their sin. God sends a savior or a judge who becomes the channel for divine deliverance, and the cycle begins all over again. And so uh, I took this class, like I said, 25 years ago. That was back in the day when you wrote with a pencil. Remember those days? And you ended up with great big, huge three-wing notebooks like this thing. Uh, now what do we have? I have an iPad. It's such a cool thing. I love technology. Anyway, it has nothing to do with the message. Um, but... But what, it, what it, this did was it really, really impact my life, that there is a clear cycle of failure identified in the book of Judges that we need to understand, otherwise we're going to go through the very same cycle in our own lives over and over and over again, just like they did. So we're going to use our picture from last week, and I want you and your note guide to fill in the blanks this week, because I want you to figure this out. And I'm going to walk through this cycle, because it's not unique to just the time of Judges. I think it affects you and I also. The cycle begins like this. Um, there's a time of peace and prosperity. Things are going really well. You're in the sweet spot with the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever terminology you want to use to describe that moment. But then God warned the people of Israel, when you get to this sweet spot, watch out, watch out, because it can be the beginning of your downfall. In fact, he says in Deuteronomy chapter 31, when you come into the land I've promised, and when you eat to your fill, and you thrive, you're going to have a tendency to forget me. And you know what happens in Judges? That very thing, over and over and over again. Uh, once then God uh, is, is beginning to be forgotten, complacency sets in. Complacency sets in, and we call that spiritual drift. Um, phrases that Aaron used last week to describe complacency really, really well. It's a disposition of disobedience. It's wrong worship with wrong priorities. Um, it's forgetting what God has done for you. Uh, I look at it this way. I'm laying on the couch wanting to take life easy. I'm taking a spiritual nap because I just don't want to do the work of staying uh, connected uh, to my Lord and my Savior. And then what happens is you easily and readily adopt sin. The sinful ways of culture don't seem so bad because you're getting far from God, you're drifting from God, and you begin to adopt beliefs and behaviors that are anti-God. And so what had happened in ancient Israel's case in the book of Judges, they would begin to worship the false gods around them and the culture found around them. And then God would allow something critical to happen. You know what it's called? Pain, consequences. I call it the big ouch moment. 
Ouchie, 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 right? This doesn't feel so good. The life I thought I was going to get isn't the life that I'm experiencing. And this was meant to drive these people to repentance and drive us to, to, to repentance. Um, th- this moment of crying out then that would happen next would be uh, turning back to God. And it would be characterized by vigor in worship once again, a truly seeking after God, uh, repentance for what you've done, and, and wanting to connect again with God. God said in Second. Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal the land. We always hear that on the National Day of Prayer. But it's a verse that's meant to be something that we have readily available as we approach God. If I cry out to God, he'll heal me from heaven and he'll heal the land. Uh, and, and so that, that's a crying out face. And then God, as in the case of Israel, would send over and over again a judge, a deliverer, uh, a divine intervention to deliver his people uh, uh, from uh, the spot they had now found themselves in. And that was, of course, foreshadowing that there would be a divine deliverer, uh, once for all, uh, righteous judge that would come on our behalf. His name is Jesus Christ and deliver us from, from the predicament that we find ourselves in. You know, the famous judges uh, include people like Ehud. You probably know this dude, right? Ehud. How about Deborah? Or Gideon, Pastor Aaron talked about him last week, and today we're going to talk about uh, Jethah, and then Samson. These were some of the famous, well-known judges uh, of the book of Judges who were part of this cycle, uh, were part of God's answer uh, to the waywardness of his people Israel. So get this, this is a, a cycle we got to watch out for, where we have good times, we have peace, we have prosperity, things are going well, it's really easy to, easy to drift to get spiritually complacent. And then we readily begin to adopt sinfulness and the sinful ways of our culture. And this brings upon our lives pain, ouchie. Then that's meant to drive us to our knees in repentance and vigor of, 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 of searching out God once again. And then, then we experience what? The deliverance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In our case, and they did experience the deliverance of a judge in the case of Israel. Now listen, cycles are really good if you're a washing machine, right? But they're not so good for the people of God. They're not so good for the people of God. We want to be cycle breakers. We want to know, get to this place of interrupting the cycle. Um, and so we have to begin to understand spiritual drift. We have to begin to understand uh, how to interrupt this cycle as we go around. You know, otherwise, we're going to be doomed to go around and around and around. And our life's going to be characterized like that of a person in the days of judges. And we don't want that, do we? I don't want that in my life. Do you want that in your life? Uh, a week ago, Vicki and I were in uh, northern Minnesota. And uh, we went to the Lake Superior shore there in northern Minnesota. Any of you ever gone there? And this time of year, the colors are supposed to be beautiful, and they are, they're beautiful. And so we, we hiked like crazy, uh, lots of rivers. We hiked up and saw all kinds of waterfalls and all kinds of colors. And it got to the point where my cup literally ran over. I mean, I saw so many waterfalls. I said to Vicki, I don't want to see another lot waterfall. I've seen enough waterfalls, you know. And, and, and one, at one point, we came upon an interesting landmark there on the north shore uh, of Lake Superior in the Minnesota side. We saw... Uh, Baraga's cross, and, and, and it was commemorating this uh, uh, priest, um, I think it was a Sylvanian priest, 
that came over, I'm going to read my notes, I say this right. He came over here in 1831. He spent a long life uh, ministering to the uh, Ojibwe uh, Native Americans in that area of Upper Peninsula, Michigan, northern uh, Wisconsin, and northern Minnesota. And he was known as the snowshoeing priest. He's, and if you, if you know that area, you know why. Um, because that's their life half the year, snow and, and all that. Well, at one point he heard, the, the, the Baraka heard that there was an epidemic happening over in Minnesota, in northern Minnesota, uh, and so he was going to make his way from an island off of the north part of Wisconsin. He was going to make his way with an Ojibwe a guide uh, to bring them some medical supplies. Well, he got on to Lake Superior, and guess what happened? A huge storm set in. And I don't know if you've ever experienced one of these storms when you're on a big body of water like that, but they were helplessly driven by that storm um, all the way across the, the, the meat of Lake Superior. Now, Lake Superior, as I read the brochure, is the biggest freshwater body of lake in the world, or body of water in the world, which I didn't know that before. Uh, you know, Growing up in Minnesota, I just took water for example. I figure everybody has as much water. There's water everywhere if you grow up in Minnesota. And, and it's a huge lake. And so we happened upon the place that he landed. He, he was blown all the way across this lake, out of control, and he ends up in the Cross River, the mouth of the Cross River, one place of basically safety in that shoreline if you're standing there and looking at it. And he went across the sandbar, and he was so grateful for being uh, uh, spared that he erected a, a cross as a, a commemoration to, that God spared his life. Well, today you see this granite cross there. And that's what we saw. We saw this cross, this cross of uh, Baroga, and I went and read the story. I said, this is a fascinating story. Now, I stood there one night, and the waves are just pounding. You, you have to be at the, this is a big lake uh, with a lot of water. And I'm standing there, the water just crashing up, and you, you, you're kind of cautious about getting close to the lakeshore because it is perilous. It's just stone and it goes straight down. And if he would have hit that part of the beach, anywhere along there, other than the mouth of the Cross River, he probably would have died. He probably would have been pounded to death uh, on the rocks. The boat that they came across in was like a canoe. So he's in a canoe on this huge body of water you can't even see across in the middle of the storm. And so you can kind of understand his gratitude, but he was helplessly driven along by this fierce current and this fierce drift. He just couldn't do anything about it. And so I just stood there one night, uh, as I'm fond of saying, and said, are you kidding me? He came across this lake in a canoe in the storm? No way. How did that ever work itself out? And it reminded me, because I'm thinking a lot on, uh, on what I'm talking on and what I want to share with all of you, and I'm thinking, you know what? The, the drift of this world, the currents of this world are like a storm on Lake Superior. They're strong. And you can easily get captured in that and just get blown along in life and end up at some destination that you didn't want to end up at, right? Because you're not living life intentionally. You're not living life on purpose. You're just kind of in that couch mode and thinking, oh, I just want to take it easy. And pretty soon you're getting culturally influenced and the influence of culture is so very strong. And before you know it, you're in this fierce, violent storm and helplessly being drawn, uh, you know, blown along and ending up at a destination you don't want to end up. That's not to be our story, is it? That's not what we should settle for. We need to be people who get out of the current. So let me give you this introductory thought this morning. Let me give you this introductory thought, um, and it's this. A life unattended to 
will often drift into the currents of the day. A life unattended to will often drift into the currents of the day. And I'm reminded that the currents aren't subtle. They're not gentle. They're like a storm on Lake Superior. If you get into them, they overwhelm you and they take over your life. In the case of spiritual drift, oftentimes, though, it starts out very unnoticed. You don't know you're doing it. That's why it's insidious. That's why it's dangerous. And it often goes unnoticed until you're beginning to adopt sinful ways as being normative and thinking they're okay. And then what settles into your life is some pain and consequences. And we want to begin to be people who stop the cycle at the drift point. And I have a couple easy to remember ways to become a cycle breaker because God wants us to be a cycle breaker. And first of all, you have to identify your drift current. You have to identify your drift current. You have to begin to look at your life aware. You have to have some self-awareness. You have to have some honesty going on here. What's driving my life? Where is my life taking me? Do you go to bed at night with a peace in your heart that today, Lord Jesus, I've lived this day unto your glory and for your purposes and I'm at peace with my life? Or do you go to bed at night feeling anxious and nervous and, and kind of caught up in a bunch of stuff and worrying and all that kind of thing, making fear-based decisions? I'm telling you if, you, if you're the latter, you're in a drift of culture. You just may not know it. And you need to begin to say, what is causing me to feel this way? What drift am I in? Um, how do I get out of this? I know my life shouldn't be like this. I'm dissatisfied with it being like this, and so I want to address it. And you become self-aware. You begin to identify the drift, which brings us to the second important thing if you want to stop the cycle. Interrupt this drift with biblical correction. Just interrupt the drift with biblical correction. You have to get out of the current somehow. And that usually means I take uh, and reevaluate my life in light of God's word and instruction. And oftentimes God will ask you to go against the current of the day, against the culture that we find ourselves in. Um, so identifying and interrupting to me are like operative words if we don't want to go around the cycle of judges. If we don't want to go through this, life is really good, and you kind of complacent and begin to experience spiritual drift, and then begin to say, well, what's so wrong with people doing this? Or, or what's so bad about the world we live in? And pretty soon we're adopting the sinful ways of the world. And then what happens? Pain sets into our lives. Consequence sets into our life. And, and then usually if we handle that pain and consequence correctly, we begin to cry out to God, and then God will deliver us. But what's to go round and round and round and round like that? We want to break it off. We want to stay in that sweet spot in God, amen? And so we have to begin to be one to, who ruthlessly are self-aware and identifying our spiritual drift tendencies and then be willing to interrupt them with correct biblical knowledge and intervention. So what I want to do is show you how this works itself out using the example of judges. Last week, uh, Pastor Aaron talked about Gideon. I'm taking the story right after Gideon, the story of, of Jethah. Okay, and the cycle begins once again, and God raises up another deliverer, and his name is Jethal. Let me give you some background information here. It's from Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. 
Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashereths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan and Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, we have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, um, uh, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery uh, no longer. So, do you notice how this scripture begins? How does it begin? What little word? Again. Again. Again, they begin to forget their God. Again, they begin to become drifters and complacent and adopt the ways of the culture around them and uh, they would begin to go around the judges cycle again here's where i think some identification is helpful i'm going to use our terminology some identification is helpful what is the problem here what is going on with the israelites in the days of judges why are they continually getting into the cycle of, of falling from god and having to be restored and having to have a a, a, a deliverer uh, come and rescue them i want to put this into our terminology so identify the israelites were so culturally influenced that they adopted ungodly practices. They were so culturally influenced that they adopted ungodly practices. Their drifting took them right to embracing of the false religions that God had judged the previous people for. They were so influenced by the culture that they lived in, they began to be like that culture. And one of the common drift factors I see over and over and over again in this cycle of failure in the book of Judges is that people constantly gave into culture. They became like the people around them. They say, what's the big deal? And the sobering thing is they never seem to realize it until consequences set in, pain sets in, and then they go, oh, we messed up. We need to turn back to God. And there's a warning for us here today. There's a warning for us that I want us to heed. Watch out that you don't become so immersed with secular culture that we live in that you don't know when you're adopting ungodly practices. Watch out. We do it really quickly. We become so immersed with our secular culture that we find ourselves in that we begin to adopt ungodly practices and think they're no big deal. It wasn't that long ago in our history as a denomination, the Wesleyan denomination, that uh, we are so concerned about the culture that we became kind of a separatist people, which isn't a good approach. But what was uh, being promoted was, you know, the women couldn't wear any makeup. Um, they had to have their hair in the holy bun. Now the men have their hair in the holy bun. I find that so funny. <laughs> uh, you're just being men who do that. You're just being like the women of old. Anyway, um, 
you know, and there was this real separatist attitude. Uh, we can't be in this culture. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. We're going to be separate over here, and we're going to be holy and set apart to God. The trouble with that is that God calls his people to be where? Over there in the middle of culture. We're to be in culture, but not of culture. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. But now what we have going on is almost the other extreme. We're going into the culture. Should we, we should, but we're not being discerning. We're not thinking things through. We're just adopting culture as a good thing. And we're so zealous to relate to culture that culture is beginning to change us instead of us changing culture. And that is the danger of becoming culturally relevant is you could become culturally influenced. We're to be in this world, but not of this world. We're supposed to be the ones that have the Holy Spirit living in us, and we go into places and we set the temperature. Amen? We're not going to places and letting them set the temperature in us. And this is a fine line to walk. And we're to be in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And so we have to really become aware that spiritual drift can be, happen really quickly here because we can become enmeshed with our culture and we can begin to drift and adopt practices of our culture and say they're no big deal, they're no big deal. Listen, you can be culturally relevant without being culturally influenced. Uh, let me give you one really, it's a silly example, but it's not so silly. If you go to a, a movie, do y'all like movies? I like movies. There was a day in church history, too, where you could go to a movie. You remember that? Some of you older ones? Movies are bad. Don't go to movies. But now, if you go to a movie and every other word is taking Jesus' name in vain, at some point you need to stand up and leave that movie. Okay? This isn't being judgmental. This is not being culturally irrelevant. It is being culturally discerning. At some point you have to say, this movie is harming my soul. That's not good for me to know this. I don't need to know this filth to be culturally relevant. You see what I'm saying here? At some point, you have to say, enough blasphemy. I just need to get out of here. It's okay to walk out and say, that movie wasn't for me, or to turn the channel off. TV, usually you're doing it in your own home, so it's not like you're witnessing to somebody else. You're watching a movie. If that thing is destroying your soul, turn the stupid thing off. Sorry, I'm getting pretty emphatic on that, but... Ah, right? That's not being relevant. Now, I like movies. Vicki and I like, watch lots of movies, but there have been times we go, oh, oof, duh. <laughs> I don't think so. We just turned it off. <laughs> All right. So God raises up this deliverer, Jetha. And uh, he's the man of the hour. His mother's a prostitute. His dad's a mighty warrior. And it's like usual, God uses the most unlikely sources as his deliverer. Um, but Jethad, even in the delivering of, of Israel uh, from their present enemies, he, he really embraces a cultural way of doing that. And therein lies some of the uh, problem uh, that I see even in this delivering. His, even in his delivering of Israel, he, he's doing it in such a way that is kind of, um, kind of forfeiting uh, 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 God's primacy place. Let, let me talk about this. Let me just read this to you. Uh, here's what happens in Judges chapter 11, verses 30 through 31. Listen to what, what he does. Listen to what Jetha says. Whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then 
Jethah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. What are you doing? He didn't need to do this. Why was he making this bargain with God? God didn't say, Jethah, in order for you to have victory, you need to strike a bargain with me. There was no need of this whatsoever. But he was influenced by the culture he lived in because this is how the culture of that day functioned. They served these gods where it was, I do something for my God, my God does something for me. And that really influenced Jetha. And then he, he went out to do the Lord's work and he, he just did it like he would do it for one of the gods of that day. But don't we do this too? Our culture says, to be okay with God, you do good things and God repays you, right? That is so unbiblical. And Jethod fell right into that methodology, and so he returns home after the victory. And a lot of you know the story, don't you? Who comes out of his house first? His precious daughter. I'm sure he thought it would be an animal. He could just sacrifice it, no big deal. It'd be a glorious moment, and he could uh, revel in and all that. And out of this house comes his daughter. And they go, oh, no. They all go, oh, no. And there's a lot of debate here on, did Jethod really sacrifice his daughter or not? Um, some think he did. Some think that he, he uh, sacrificed her in the sense that she would never marry and be celibate the rest of her life and live this life set apart to the Lord and all that kind of thing. Whatever be the case, that wasn't needed. That was being so culturally influenced that you did what the culture around you did. It was adopting a practice of culture. And so his story tells us, even in this deliverance, that we got to watch out that, that culture doesn't influence us more than we think. So listen to this. This is my point here. Looking at this, if we want to interrupt, if we want to interrupt this cycle, okay, truly interrupt this cycle of falling away, then the people of God need to follow God's word as common practice. It needs to become our default mode. We follow God's word. It's just common practice. We do things biblical. We're ruthlessly analyzing our life in a biblical context. It's the filter through which we see and interact uh, with our world. Um, Jethad seemed to be so influenced by his culture at that time that he kind of did this without thinking. You know what? Gideon did something along these lines too. At the end of his life, uh, you know, after he experiences the, the mighty hand of God and delivers the people of Israel, we're told that the people wanted to thank him. You know what he said? Well, give me the gold earring, some of the plunder that you've taken from the people that we defeated. And he made a gold ephod, a golden ephod. And we're told he set it up in his hometown. And then the Bible says these words, the people prostituted themselves before the golden ephod. They begin to worship the ephod. And, and, it, and it became a snare to the household of Gideon. And I think of these guys, why are you doing this? You don't need to do it. The Bible doesn't say to do it. God doesn't command you to do it. Why are you doing it? We have to follow God's word as common practice. So often we'll make decisions. I don't know how you are. So often we'll make decisions in life by referring to a bunch of friends. We'll ask them for their advice. And there's nothing wrong with getting advice of many people. Counsel's found in the advice of many, the Bible says. But we often go to the Bible as a last resort when it should be our first resort. It should be the first thing we look at. Does the Bible say something about my life that's applicable? Then we need to follow it, no questions asked. We need to become people who follow God's word as common practice. If not, if we don't do this, we'll, we'll begin to experience drift. Let me get personal with you. I want to end with this question. In your case of drift, what does God's word say for you to do? 
If you have a tendency to follow the world, a tendency to do things that, that, that are getting you to this place of fear and anxiety and feeling far from God, and you're feeling some pain, are, 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 my question to you is, um, what does God's word say? What does it say to you to do? Uh, let me give you some examples. You might be all caught up in success, especially if you're younger. It talks about life being broken to two. Uh, a book I read from Bob Beerford talked about this years ago, that, that people tend to break life into two major segments, success and significance. And young people especially go after success, get a career, get a job, get good money, have kids. Uh, I guess that's success. And then uh, get a house, get a car, and all that stuff. It begins to define your life. Boom, 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 boom. But what does God say is success? What does God say is success? He says, do not store your treasures on this earth where moth and rust destroys them. But where do we store up our treasures? In heaven. So I'm not saying you shouldn't try to do well, but if that becomes what you live for, you're drifting. You're in Lake Superior. You're being blown to a destination you don't want to go to because one day you're going to look at all the stuff around you and go, why is this stuff what I live for? No one on their deathbed has said to me ever, I wish I had more stuff. Everyone, the regret they have is I wish I spent more time with my kids. I wish I talked about the Lord more. I wish I took the time to talk to my neighbor and get to know them. They never say, you know that new vehicle that's coming out? I wish I really had that before I died. Not one person has said that to me. Success can't define us. Another drift right now I see is this. The whole world, it seems like, is into spiritual fitness and looking good. Any of you work out? Raise your hand if you work out. I'm just curious. You, you, now you think I can't tell them I work out. I work out all the time. Working out's okay. It's fun. It's good. Um, but get this. The Bible says stewardship of the body is important. It's, it's important to take care of your body. But what's more important? your spiritual health and well-being. How is it with your soul? So if you're working out and keeping your body in shape, I would challenge you, do equivalent amount of soul work. Keep your soul in shape. It's not one or the other. It's in the right order, soul, body, not body, soul. And in so much of the world, it's like living for the body. Well, I'm telling you what, as a 59-year-old guy, your body won't be what it is right now if you're 20, no matter how hard you work out. It goes downhill. Everything aches. You don't even know you have parts until they begin to ache. But, but you can't live for that. That's not what life is about, all right? So I value fitness, but fitness isn't what drives me. What drives me is my love of Jesus Christ, all right? And it's okay to, to work out. So what does God's word say? How does it set your, your, your priorities right in life? How, how does it interrupt your spiritual drift? Um, John Ortberg uh, gave this illustration in his material um, that we're using in our small groups, and I want to share this with you. Uh, he gives this illustration. He says, when a, 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 a fighter pilot's being trained, the trainer usually will take that pilot up at some point and just disorient the trainee. He'll flip the plane all over the place and get the, the pilot all messed up so he doesn't know what up, up is from down, okay? He doesn't know what's going on. He's totally disoriented. And the point of the exercise is simply this. In order for that trainee to right the plane, 
they have to look at their instruments because at that point they're so disoriented, their gut feeling is all off, they have no perception, they know what's going on. And the point of the exercise is simply to get that pod to trust the instruments, to look at the instruments and write the plane because if they get in that situation ever and he's not with them, the trainer's not with them, and they try to go by gut feeling, they'll probably crash the plane. And, and the point that Orberg makes, and I think is a valid point, is this. We live in a world right now where up is down and down is up and everything's toppy-turvy and, and there's no orientation and it's very confusing. And if you try to go by gut feeling and if you try to go by your perception and sight and, and what feels good and what feels right, oftentimes that leads to a bad place. You're on the wrong side of Lake Superior. And what, what, what Oprah says, and I agree with this with my, my whole heart, he says, the Bible has to become your instrumentation. It, it, is, it is the thing that guides you to true north. You have to look at it, and in spite of everything that's going around you, uh, on around you, you have to say, I'm going to stay focused, and I'm going to let the Bible direct my life. So here's our conclusion today. Be one who's willing to identify and interrupt. Be one who stops the cycle. Identify and interrupt. Those are our operative words today. Identify and interrupt. Be one who stops the cycle. Last week, as Pastor Aaron was sharing at the end, and we got kind of to that reflection moment, I looked at my own life and I thought, you know what? I've drifted on a lot of things. There are a lot of things I used to do that I'm not doing, partly because of complacency, partly because of apathy, partly because I've just drifted. And I, I found myself last week saying, you know, I need to get back. I need to practice this again. I need to do this again. And it's kind of a real personal thing, and I'm beginning to just try to work it out in my own life. But this morning, as we finish up, I want to encourage you, as you go home, what does God want you to identify in your life? That's a spiritual drift thing for you. And I tell you what, if you have fear and anxiety and nervousness and all that kind of stuff, that's a drift. That's drift. That's not a, a healthy place. So you have to ask, why is that going on in my life? Am I letting the world define my success? Uh, you know, am I pursuing the things that everybody else pursues that are hollow for them? It's going to be hollow for me, too. Um, you begin to get ruthlessly analytical with yourself and saying, what's causing this? And then interrupt it with God's way. And say, okay, God, I'm going to do it your way. Even if the whole world doesn't do it that way, I'm going to do it that way because that way will lead me to life and to faith. I think a lot of fear is experienced by the Christian community because we're drifting along in the stream of culture, so readily adapting things to the culture. Listen, if you're going to go out with somebody and you want to be witnessing to them or whatever, if, if it's a cocaine user, I don't have to use cocaine to witness to that person be relevant. I just have to love on them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm to be in their world. I'm to help them. I'm to minister to them, but I don't embrace their ways. Right? You're all looking at me like, I don't know what else you want to do here. I'm up here and there. But anyway, I think there's some fine line walking here we have to figure out. I played basketball with guys all the time when I was at Williston. I loved it, and I'm going over, way over here. Lucas, we're going to have to go short in the song. I'm sorry, but, um, but I want to share this. I love those guys. I love playing basketball. They were a rough group of guys. They swore all the time. I didn't swear. I didn't have to swear to be relevant to them. 
I was just there with them. Did that mean I didn't play basketball hard? I remember one guy saying, this is Steve, he's a pastor, but don't, don't be fooled by that. He'll take your head off in the game if he has to. I don't know if that's a compliment or not, but I was a very aggressive person. You don't have to lay down who you are to fit in, but listen, you do not have to, you do not have to become one who gives up your identity in Jesus Christ and your uniqueness because you're salt and light. Be salt and light but be in the world, amen? Does this make sense? Because I, I gotta quit. What does the Lord ask of you? I love this scripture. What does the Lord ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commandments and decrees. I'm gonna pray and I guess we're just gonna be done. I love you, Lucas, man. We we're gonna sing, Be Thou My Vision. So as you walk out of here, he's gonna sing it anyway. Let that be kind of your sending song. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord God, I thank you for today. Thank you for uh, the cycle of judges. I thank you for Aaron's message last week. Um, it's good to just kind of sit sometimes and do some reflection. And I pray today as we leave here, that's what we all do, that we reflect on the last couple of weeks as we talked on this important topic of spiritual drift. God, I know you're calling us to be cycle breakers. I know you're calling us uh, to be one to uh, identify these drift things that are taking us from you, Lord, and then be willing to interrupt them with a, a, a biblical perspective. And uh, whatever be the case, Lord, I pray that that would be us. Um, we so readily, uh, I think, succumb to culture around us more than we realize. Um, we're to be in the culture, but not of the culture. That was the, seeming to be the setting, starting point for the Israelites. They would just get wrapped up in the culture around them, and then pretty soon they're just like the culture around them, forgetting their God. You know, they have a disposition towards a disobedience and all those other words that were used last week. God begins to describe them. We don't want that to be us. Help us to be people who are uh, fresh in you, are salt and light to this world, who are vigorous in our worship of you, Lord, uh, experiencing this uh, real intimacy with you, God. Um, we just want to cling to you, Lord Jesus, and be close to you. Uh, so would you bless the people of Grace Point, fill them with your Holy Spirit today? Because none of this is possible unless you Spirit fill us. So fill us with the love of the Father, and may we love the world like you love the world, Jesus, being in the world, not of the world. You, you dined with sinners, Lord, but you didn't become a sinner. You ministered to people, but you didn't have to become like them to minister to them. And I pray that that would be us, Lord Jesus, that we know how to strike that fine line and, and that uh, we would be culturally relevant but not culturally uh, influenced. We love you, Jesus Christ. We give this day to you. I pray you bless all the people of Grace Point. May they be world changers as they go out from this place. May they be so full of your fire and your Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, that it's hard for them to contain it. And I pray that wherever they find themselves, whether at home, at school, at work, wherever, that the fire of Christ would burn richly in their lives, Lord Jesus, and that they would minister to those around them. And no matter, almost like out of compulsion, because I can't help it, Jesus. I pray this in your name and by your blood. And all God's people said,